The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. We have a fun one today. We have Mike Palindrome here for part two of our Great Literary Terms and Devices discussion. We decided that 10 terms just wasn't enough, so we picked 10 more. We'll stop at 20, but really, we could have gone on to 50 or 100. There are a lot of terms. These are some of our favorites. But before we get to that, I ran across some interesting information while doing some research here at the History of Literature podcast library vault, Mark Twain's publishing company. How did that go? I knew vaguely that he had some success with it. I knew he had published the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, the former Civil War hero and United States president. I did not know the full story of Twain's publishing company, the riches to rags side of it. Mark Twain was more of an entrepreneur than I knew, and yet the publishing company was something of a disaster. Total fiasco. And I haven't done a full study on this or anything. I don't have access to the ledger. But I think you can see from the titles of the books they published just what went wrong. Or at least if we can't prove causation, we can at least... Celebrate the correlation. A publishing company taking a downward tilt. These are the books they were publishing as everything started going wrong. It's not clear which of the books was the iceberg or if they all were in combination. But this is what was happening as the Titanic started taking on water and then descended to the bottom of the sea. Mark Twain was born as Samuel Longhorn Clemens in November of 1835 in Hannibal, Missouri. He started his career in publishing early, first as an apprentice to a printer. That was his first job. Then he worked as a typesetter and finally worked his way up to become a writer of newspaper articles. His older brother, Orion Clemens, was a lawyer about 10 years older than Mark Twain was. Samuel Clemens, I guess, at that point. Orion bought the local newspaper, the Hannibal Journal, and ran that for a few years before it went bust. Then he ran another newspaper in Iowa for a while, and he moved again and ran a printing office, and he hired his brother Samuel. At these spots, Samuel was now 20 years old. Samuel had been barnstorming around, working as a printer in cities throughout the East and Midwest. He also became a steamboat pilot, fulfilling his childhood dream, and he was getting some sketches and stories published here and there. When the Civil War broke out, Samuel briefly enlisted. He was in a Confederate state, and he volunteered for the Confederate Army, which he did for about two weeks with some friends before they all abandoned the idea. Orion, the older brother, meanwhile, had moved to Nevada. He worked as the secretary of the Nevada Territory and was the acting governor when the actual governor was outside the territory. Eventually, Samuel joined him out there. 
His writing started to take off now. Journalism, travel letters, and humorous tall tales. He worked in San Francisco alongside Bret Hart and others. He changed his name to Mark Twain and wrote a lot of humorous pieces. He gave lectures. He was paid to travel and write about his travels. He wrote Life on the Mississippi and The Innocents Abroad and The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Prince and the Pauper. A lot of famous books coming out of this period. And then... We are now up to the 1860s, and Mark Twain is in his 30s, and he decided to publish his next book himself. One might think that Orion's example in publishing, his struggles in both publishing and printing, would have cautioned Mark Twain against starting up his own publishing company. Twain had no illusions about his brother's lack of success. In fact, he would eventually suggest that Orion should write a memoir. And he said, you could, you, it could be all about the, you could chronicle the failure of the American dream. <laughs> How would you like to hear that from your famous younger brother? I'm writing, <laughs> right? If your famous younger brother, your celebrated younger brother came up to you and said, hey, I'm writing a memoir and you should write one too about your failure. Thanks, bro. Orion actually did write his memoir, and it was in progress when he died, and Twain burned the manuscript. That's a story for another day. The story for today is the Charles L. Webster and Company publishing house. The founder, Mark Twain. Mark Twain made a lot of money from his writing and speaking engagements, and he blew a lot of it in bad investments. He had a taste, I guess you would say, a weakness, some might say, for new technology and inventions. He was friends with Nikola Tesla, for example, as well as Thomas Edison. He liked inventors. He held three patents of his own. One was for a self-pasting scrapbook where you the pages were full of dry adhesive and you just had to moisten them and then you could put your, your photos and things in there. That one actually brought in Twain some money. He also patented a history of trivia game, and a better alternative to suspenders. He sank a lot of money into someone else's invention, a typesetting machine that promised to replace the need for humans to do the typesetting. The machine used a mechanical arm to do it. Twain, with his long years of printing experience, knew what an improvement it would be if it worked, and he invested his book money, his Wife's inheritance, nearly everything he had into the typesetting machine, the miracle. Millions of dollars in today's money, and the thing flopped. It cost more to produce than it was originally expected to. It wasn't as precise as they thought it would be. That doesn't help if you're trying to reduce the man hours that you need to typeset if you need humans to come in and fix things and straighten them up, edit them, correct the mistakes. Not much of an efficiency gain there. And the machine broke down too much. Twain lost tons of money, and some say the brightness of his sense of humor, which turned darker and more subdued as the years went by because of his business failures and some personal tragedies that were going on. But all that was in his future. For now, 
He was setting up a publishing company. He was frustrated by the state of publishing, specifically by the lack of money that came his way. He was being paid as an author, but the publisher made money too, and Twain saw no reason why he shouldn't capture all of the proceeds instead of just a share. He named his niece's husband, Charles L. Webster, as a business director. That's where the firm got its name. And the publishing company was ready for business. Their first book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Perhaps you've heard of it. That's hard to beat. Ernest Hemingway would later declare, Huck Finn is the finest American novel ever written. It was popular, and it sold well. It earned a lot of money. And the second book they brought out did even better, The Personal Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, published in two volumes. The year was 1885. Grant was only 10 or so years removed from the presidency and 20 or so years from having led the Union Army to victory. He had long been known as a supremely good storyteller, able to recount military narratives with detail and verve. He was also dying, having been diagnosed with throat cancer, and he was broke, and he wanted to leave his wife enough money to live off of after he had passed. Publishers were offering him 10% royalties on his memoirs. That was the typical arrangement. Twain, who was a friend of Grant's and who knew of Grant's financial difficulties, offered him 70%, which Grant accepted. It took Grant several months to write his memoir, much of which he dictated, and he died a few days after it was finished. It's a well-written book full of honest assessments and straightforward prose, that storytelling power, and that command of detail. And of course, Grant was widely viewed as a hero, and the book confirmed that view. It was the right book at the right time, and it was a smash hit. Twain was soon delivering a check to Julia, Grant's widow, for $450,000, which today would be something like $13 million U.S. dollars. Even if we subtract Twain's costs, the 30% that he retained on the book must have netted him millions of dollars in today's money. Not too shabby for his first year, Huck Finn and the publishing sensation of the day, if not the decade. And then... Things went downhill. <laughs> Within 10 years, the company went completely bust. How did this happen? As I said before, there's probably not one cause, but let's check some of the titles and see what they were up to. I think it's fair to say that if the Charles L. Webster Publishing Company had limited itself to two books a year, and they were of the quality of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, if they were of the quality and had the commercial appeal of those books, then the publishing company would have been safe. But not every not every author of a memoir is a Grant, and not every novel is Huck Finn. So, 1885, off to a great start. Then things start to go downhill. In 1886, they brought out another Civil War general story, George McLennan. You can see a pattern developing quickly. There's books by there are books by Twain himself and memoirs and autobiographies of famous people, especially generals, but not every general was a grant. And not all of Twain's books were Huck Finn for that matter. For Twain's books, you can kind of understand why they're putting them they're bringing them out even if they only broke even. 
Twain didn't like his publishers than he had before. He thought they were either incompetent or ripping him off. So he probably liked having control, at least at first. Eventually, things got so bad that he had to reinvest the profits from his own books to make up for the losses. He was like Michael Jordan, owning the Wizards and running the team so poorly he had to put on his uniform again. <laughs> okay, the roster is terrible. I'd better join the team and try to make something happen. You can imagine Twain who went into this to make money after all and probably give himself some freedom. You can imagine him feeling like he was writing twice as much to no purpose because of the other dogs they were publishing. So let's get to the dogs. In 1886, they were still following the formula. McClellan's memoirs. McClellan had been a famous general too, almost as famous as Grant, though not nearly as successful on the battlefield, but famous his subtitle kind of tells a story. McLennan's own story, colon, the war for the Union, the soldiers who fought it, the civilians who directed it, and his relations to it and them. Kind of wordy. <laughs> kind of like, remember me? I was Grant before Grant. I was the one Lincoln hated because I wouldn't fight. And I ran for president against him. But even so, maybe it's interesting to get a different perspective. McLennan defending himself, saying, here's why I got a bad rap. That was the only book that the Webster Publishing Company brought out in 1886. In 1887, things started to get worse. There were three other books by or about generals. One was by a guy named Samuel Wiley Crawford, and it was all about one battle, the one at Fort Sumter, an important battle, but he wasn't even a general at the time. He was a doctor. Another book was about General George Custer. There's a famous name written by his widow, but listen to this subtitle. Tenting on the Plains, or General Custer in Kansas and Texas. Now, what do you notice about that title? What's not in the title? Montana, a.k.a. the location of the Battle of the Bighorn. Custer's Last Stand. The guy has one moment, the most famous moment in his life, and that's nowhere to be found in the book. General Custer, tenting on the plains. The third general I had never even heard of, Elmira Russell Hancock's book, Reminiscence, Reminiscences of Winfield Scott Hancock. A flop. That Grant magic doesn't extend to just any old general. That year, they also brought out a biography of the Pope that they had high hopes for, but it was disappointing. Fewer than 200 copies of that book sold. And then they had some truly curious efforts. A book called The Legends and Myths of Hawaii. Remember that title? Oh, it's actually called The Legends and Myths of Hawaii, colon, The Fables and Folklore of a Strange People. It was a flop. Samuel Sullivan Cox wrote Diversions of a Diplomat in Turkey. Flop. In 1888, they were still going after that old grand magic. Personal memoirs of P.H.S. Sheridan, General, United States Army. Also had a biography of Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, which was a good idea but unsuccessful, sort of like the Pope book. And then things really go off the rails. For the second year in a row, they published a book with the title The Legends and Myths of Hawaii. 
different author, exact same title. How smart is that to compete with a book you brought out just one year before? Mark Twain's Library of Humor came out that year. That's a no-brainer. But who greenlit William H. Van Nortwick's Yanks and Johnnies or Laugh and Grow Fat? Flop. And Alexander Filippini had a book. We will come to know Mr. Filippini and his interests pretty soon here. His first book that he published with them was called The Table, How to Buy Food, How to Cook It, and How to Serve It. I don't even know what to say about that one. Twain fired Charles L. Webster after that. (laughs) Fired him from the Charles L. Webster and Company publishing house. What do you tell people? We're just the and company now. 1889, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Another Twain book, another hit. And The Life and Letters of Roscoe Conkling, Orator, Statesman, Advocate. Flop. I found the name Roscoe Conkling so intriguing that I looked him up. Conkling had kind of a wild life. He was a colorful politician of the day, and maybe that one seemed like a good idea. But the country had moved on from Mr. Conkling. Nowadays, he's completely unremembered. Although, in reading his entry in Wikipedia, I encountered one of the great lines in all of Wikipedia. Under legacy, it says, quote, Roscoe Conkling's enduring legacy is scant. End quote. Sometimes those Wikipedia writers really know how to get the job done. 1890. Saw another book by our man, Alexander Filippini. This one is called Supplement to the Table. And we also had the memories, the memoirs of William T. Sherman, a book I would actually check out. That sounds good. And the biography of Ephraim McDowell, M.D., the father of ovariotomy. Not a book I'm going to read. And it turned out... Neither did anyone else. In 1891, we were getting into the dregs here. We were down to the memoirs of John A. Dahlgren, Rear Admiral, United States Navy, and Herbert Ward, My Life with Stanley's Rear Guard. Military memoirs were getting pretty thin. There were several other biographies of people I've never heard of, like Jane Welsh Carlyle, who was not the father or mother of the Ovariotomy, but the spouse of Thomas Carlyle and a renowned letter writer. I would actually read that book, but I am a pretty niche audience. No books by Filippini related to his table this year, but William Schmidt attempted to fill that gap with a book called The Flowing Bowl, When and What to Drink. (laughs) First of all, I would say... Don't drink from a bowl. And when to drink? When you're thirsty, perhaps? Is there any other time? 1891 also saw a book by Leo Tolstoy brought out by the Webster Company, but unfortunately it wasn't War and Peace or Anna Karenina, but one of his lesser-known works. The publishing house was in search of a hero, a Grant or a Huck Finn, and it was finding only George Robert Sims and his book Tinkletop's Crime. Twain sold his house in Connecticut that year with debts mounting. He moved to Europe, where he was going to try to live cheap. Things started to get really ugly at the Charles L. Webster Publishing Company. In 1892, they brought out more than 30 books, 
in sort of the last gasp. Let's flood the market. Go big or go home. But the titles are getting worse. They finally dropped the idea of generals writing their memoirs, but now they have instead the speech of monkeys in two parts. <laughs> That's right in the title. In two parts. Well, two parts? Why? <laughs> Another book by Tolstoy, two books by Twain, and two books by Walt Whitman. Those are on the plus side of the ledger. Selected poems and Whitman's autobiography. But they were not enough to outweigh the failure of The Speech of Monkeys in two parts. And books like Richard Malcolm Johnston's Mr. Billy Downs and His Likes and Madeline Vinton Dahlgren's book, Chim, His Washington Winter. Alexander Filippini came back. He produced another valiant effort with his book, 100 Ways of Cooking Eggs, and a companion book, 100 Ways of Cooking Fish. Imagine Mark Twain trying to keep a straight face as he's putting books like that out. In 1893, Filippini made one last gasp, 100 desserts. In 1894, there was Annie E. Holdsworth's classic book, Joanna Trail, Spinster. It was the nail in the coffin. Twain finally declared bankruptcy, ending the Charles L. Webster and Company publishing firm. The Charles L. Webster had left long ago, and now even the and company bowed out. So, Twain was ruined, his financial life a mess. Fortunately for him, he found a helper, a man with some business acumen, who helped Twain figure out what to do with his money, said, declare bankruptcy to get the creditors off your back and retain copyrights over your own books, and that ended up being the best source of money for Twain, not the publishing of those books, which had seemed promising, but had ended up in disaster, like so many of the other inventions and gadgets in which he invested. His final years were mixed. He went on a world tour to pay his debts, which he didn't have to pay at that point because of the bankruptcy, but he wanted to pay them anyway, and he was successful as a lecturer and humorist on the road. Unfortunately, he was sick for much of the time. His daughter died of meningitis, and he became depressed. He was living in Manhattan now, living in a hotel for a while. People kept dying. His wife died. His youngest daughter died, too. His close friends. We did an episode on Mark Twain's death that's in the archives, so I'll just close with his last words. Give me my glasses not especially profound, but I can find some poignancy there. I'd like to think he was hoping to read something, maybe one of the better books that he'd published, maybe Tolstoy or Whitman or Grant or one of his own. And there's one last bit of poignancy for this great 19th and early 20th century American writer. His final words weren't spoken. They were written down. Okay, speaking of writing, let's look at some more literary tools of the trade. Mike Palindrome joins us for part two of our look at the greatest literary terms and devices. 
after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. Joining me once again for a list of the top literary terms of all time is our old friend Mike Palindrome, a.k.a. the president of the Literature Supporters Club and a keen aficionado of many literary terms. As we heard last time when we found our top 10, Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. So in case anyone is listening to this for the first time and they missed our top 10, I'll run through them. Today we're going to pick 11 through 20. So last time you took, I'll just do it in that order, you took leitmotif, Metonymy, flat versus round characters, alienation effect, and illusion, while I took metaphor, heteroglossia, zugma, MacGuffin, and free indirect discourse. So, any regrets of your choices? <laughs> You're going to stand behind those first five that you picked? I probably would knock illusion out and pick something else. <laughs> I, just, I think that was the, the, uh, the quasi-academic in me that just felt like somebody's got to say illusion. Somebody's got to say illusion. And yeah. now I know this is going to be your number six. And I know I stole the one you wanted to use, number six, as uh, MacGuffin, which you revealed last time. So what is your pick for the number? It's your number six and our number 11. Yeah, I... I it, my number six is stream of consciousness. Oh, okay. So, so we t- talked about that last time, but do you want to say anything else about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a thing that people, everyone was trying at some point, maybe, I don't know mm. exactly when, maybe like the, 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 the 90s or 2000s. And now it's kind of fallen out of favor in, in, because of autofiction. Mm. And so and I, I, I find the two of them are somewhat related this idea to capture the reality of life. And maybe this is another way to bring up mimesis because it's one of those terms that, mm, you know, yeah. everyone should know and it's become underappreciated. Yeah. I started out with mimesis as like my number three. And then I started mm-hmm. thinking about what I would say and I ended up making it, ranking it like somewhere in the 50s. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But it is, I know what you mean, and and stream of consciousness, I guess, would be the mimesis of the interior monologue that runs through all of our minds. Yeah, and autofiction is sort of like the mimesis of, dis- if you were describing step-by-step step what you were doing, 
So rather than, mm. you know, a stream yeah. of consciousness of the mind, autofiction is almost like a stream of your mechanical movements. You know, that you tied your shoelaces and like, you know, the, the tongue of the sneaker got stuck and, you know, you had to put on thinner socks. Both are trying to aim and capture the reality of life, but it's almost like the way it, they do it is by slowing down reality in a way that would, would never really reflect reality. So that I, that's why I find mimesis to be such a fascinating term. It's almost like, well, you know, are you trying to reflect reality or are you trying to make it seem like you feel reality? Mm. You know, and they're two diff- very different things. And it, it, they're effective tricks. I think some people end up doing some stream of consciousness or some autofiction in minute doses in their work. It's a little better in minute doses, don't you think? <laughs> well, I, I, I like Nascar, so then he... Okay. You know, and I, I like Rachel Cusk's uh, trilogy, or outline trilogy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that's right. And I guess there's something about, like, Ulysses, where you're you're in it for such long stretches. It's It's like, you know, you feel like you're glimpsing an entire ocean of a person that their mind is so vast, you you can enjoy that. But I sort of like it as a tool that writers can employ here and there, uh, just because I think if it's not done well, it soon gets very tiresome. Yeah, I mean, it's candidly, I'm, I, I'm tired of certain parts of Ulysses. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but, but then you read, I don't know, the, the lists in certain works of literature that I think in Infinite Jest, there, there's a catalog of, of films in the footnotes that the father has made. And if you read through each film title, where it was shot and their description, by the time you reach the end, the joke is, is a killer joke. And it, it only works if you've read seven pages of bad film description. <laughs> I would say the joke maybe is on you at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I, I think it's a singular experience reading the, the catalog of bad films in that footnote in, in Infinite Jest. It, it does, it, it's worthwhile. So. <laughs> okay. So that's a good one for your first pick of the day, your number six and number 11 overall stream of consciousness. So I am going to take my number six, which is uh, blank verse. Mm, that's a good and, one. We haven't had a real poetry only. Right. Right. And I thought about taking iambic pentameter, uh-huh. because, but that's so familiar. I just thought, you know, that's one that everybody already knows. But blank verse is kind of a nice variation on iambic pentameter. What I like about it is that when I heard it for the first time, I had no idea what it was referring to. You can't guess it from the title. No. You know, yeah. blank verse. And it's it's usually it's associated with unrhymed iambic pentameter, but apparently it can be any meter. But I think of it as unrhymed iambic pentameter. Christopher Marlowe used it. Shakespeare used it. Milton really used it. And it avoids the tyranny and the sing-songiness of rhyme. It gives us that. It still has that cadence. You're still in a familiar world where you're there is some control that the poet is exerting but it's not they're not locked into having end rhymes and you as a reader don't need to 
have the expectation of a rhyme, which can sometimes be pleasant, but often can just uh, sort of wear you down or can distract you from something. I personally have come back to rhyming. I, I, yeah. I, it drove me crazy for a while, rhyming and poetry, but now I think with my age, I, I've started to appreciate it more. So in defense of, <laughs> in defense of rhyme, I'll just say that. But I think, I think there's something about just breaking with tradition that is very satisfying after reading like, you know, pages of, you know, iambic pentameter. Yeah, right. And something I also thought was interesting is who thought to call it blank? You know, why was it called blank verse? Blank is such an interesting word, but it's, you know, why not unrhymed or why not, um, you know, some other adjective instead of blank? And the closest I could find, I, I couldn't find who used it first, but what I could, what I found was that it apparently comes from Italian, where the verse was called versi sciolti. And sciolti comes from scogliere, which means melted, dissolved, set free, or unchained. So, for wow. example, when they say your shoelaces are untied, they'll call them shulti. So it's not clear, though, why the translation wasn't loose verse or unbound verse or unrhymed verse or anything like that. It was just a blank verse, which is such a great uh, blank is kind of an underused word. It's a very versatile word, and it's a word that I like a lot. So kind of a mystery behind it and a very powerful literary device. Blank verse is my number six. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, moving on. Your number seven. I went with immediate res, race. Mm, starting right in the middle. Yeah. And I, I think I, I tend to think of it less as like starting right in the middle of at the start of a, a novel and then um, the way things can jump between chapters. Mm. And I find that very satisfying. I think, I mean, an example of, you know, the start of the novel is Tender is the Night, where it opens in southern France. Mm. And Dick and yeah. and um, Nicole Diver are having marriage problems, mm-hmm. uh, and then right. you know after whatever seventy pages, you have the flashback to the Swiss sanitarium where Dick is Nicole's doctor at the sanitarium. Yeah, and I think that because I've talked about this, the original Fitzgerald wrote it originally with it starting in the at the sanitarium and then shifting to France and. Um, Maxwell Perkins thought it was horrible that way. Right, right. And that you can read it now in both ways. I have read it both ways, and yeah. it it works somewhat, but it's, yeah. you know, there's something about the way backstory fills in, confirms some feeling you have that's so satisfying. I think you, yeah. you, you kind of sense the, the disproportionate the imbalance of power in the relationship. Yeah. And then you see that he was her doctor and she was, yeah. you know. Right, right. Starting on the beach, I think, is the way to go. Yeah, that's great. And, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very effective device and has been around forever. I mean, it had origins in yeah. Greek theater. Yeah, I kind of think of it as you're, when you open a book and it's already in a dialogue and yeah. then you kind of are gradually filling in who's who. Pulp Fiction is famous for its time shifts, and that's kind of like that, where you, you start as they're about to rob that diner, uh, right. and you're you know kind of right in the middle of the action that way, and it is a very effective tool. That's a great pick. Okay, so I am going to take, for my number seven, mm-hmm. uh, 
term. <laughs> I don't think this one is particularly important, but once again, I just love it that it's that it describes something in a way. And I like this because it it is an example of itself, and that is the term sesquipedalian, <laughs> which means uh, someone who uses or overuses big words with lots of syllables. They might say, "Oh, that was a sesquipedalian speech," or. Or this scientific article is way too sesquipedalian for me. And this one comes from Latin. Sesqui means half, and pedalian refers to foot. So not 12 inches, but an actual foot. So they're saying a, a foot that's half as long as it needs to be, a sesquipedalian. That's that's where the, the, the term's origin is. This would get dinged on my no pretension <laughs> meter. Sesquipedalian, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Yeah, it's not one I would use in everyday life, uh, but I I like that it's out there as a, a, a potential word for people to use. So I will, given that our stakes or given that the the goal is to have a word that describes itself, mm-hmm. I am going to give you the best antonym for sesquipedalian. <laughs> but let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with that. I'll give you some time to think about it. <laughs> are back. Mike, my seventh pick for the best literary terms of all time was sesquipedalian, and I said I had an antonym that also describes itself. Uh, Could you come up with the best word that is the opposite of sesquipedalian? (laughs) No. (sighs) I think it's terse. Ah, okay. Right? Brief, curt, terse. Oh, I was thinking, or big... I guess. Big. No, antonym. It's got to be the opposite. So something that is not too long. Oh, not too, right, right. Yeah. I was thinking of the word that the, the the length of it is the opposite. Oh, What's I that see called? what you mean. Yeah. What's yeah. that called? Oh, it's not an oxymoron. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Self-contradictory term. I don't know. Maybe there, there must be a term for it. After going yeah. through all these literary devices, I know someone has already <laughs> said that. <laughs> Okay, so we are up to number eight, which is number 16, or is it number 15? I guess it's number 15 on our list of the top 20 literary terms of all time. Yeah. What is your number eight and our number 15? So my number eight is Dua Sex Machina. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that when you said in media arrest, that it reminded me of that word. So I I, I only chose this because I actually kind of hate the device. When it, yeah. you know, when it happens, right. um, I mean, it's it, considered a flaw. Yeah, it's like it's Latin for God from the machine. I didn't know this, but apparently in <laughs> like a, a, literally a crane would lower an yeah. actor dressed like a god. <laughs> right. Which is just to horrible. say like wrapping up. Yeah, yeah. Like like and now you're all going to die or now right. I'm, I'm going to all give you gold coins or whatever yeah. it was. And it was a way of jumping out of whatever 
plot that the author had painted him, whatever corner the author had painted himself into. But I, I chose this because as much as I dislike it, I kind of hate when something ends ineffably with like mm. this, you know, this aura of like, whoa, like the next day would bring some mystery. Like I walked home in the rain. Yeah, I just, I kind of, yeah. I hate, and I'm thinking more mostly of short stories that end like that. Yeah. People staring and watching snowfall. Like I just, right. I would rather have a god being lowered onto a stage and saying like, "You, you marry her," <laughs> you know, <laughs> like here's the gold pouch, like you know, like I, I would rather have that. So I, I just, to, to me, I chose this because there is something very satisfying about a Jane Austen ending to a novel. Yeah, right. Snaps it shut tight. Yeah. Snap shut the the lid tight like the uh the famous ending when i said walked home in the rain that's a farewell to arms you would have it be he walked home in the rain and then three years later he was hit by a bus and died yeah 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 right give us a give us a real ending (laughs) okay i like it okay i will take my number eight which is uh, two that are kind of linked. They're both forms of understatement, and they are litotes and meiosis. Mm. And I like that, once again, this is these are Greek words. I like that they were defining these things. And litotes is, like I said, they're both forms of understatement. Litotes will negate something to prove the opposite. Mm-hmm. So you'll talk about uh, some rich guy, and you'll say, well, he's not poor. Or... You know, you're talking about some supermodel and you say, oh, she's not ugly. That is called litotes. I've got some examples from literature. Wordsworth says, not seldom from the uproar I retired into a silent bay. And when he says not seldom, he's saying he often did retire. Sort of a nice way to to put something different in the mind of the reader or the listener and express something in a way that I don't know. It it just gives you a different feel, a different flavor. It's a little bit more confiding, almost like the speakers kind of put their arm around you and it and you're just sort of talking together. You you have this shared understanding of something. Or it can be very humble, like T. S. Eliot in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock saying, I am no prophet and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. And he's kind of saying, Why would you care? It's it's just me, and I'm I'm basically nobody. I'm I'm not making any grand claims for anything. But guess what? I'm about to die. <laughs> <laughs> then the other one, meiosis, is where it's it's related. It's it's something like when you call the Atlantic Ocean the pond, or the American South when they called the Civil War the recent unpleasantness, or the Black Knight in Monty Python saying "tis but a scratch." Uh, which also Mercutio and Romeo and Juliet also did. It's it's basically you're underplaying something. You're describing something as being much smaller, insignificant, sort of giving it the back of your hand. But it's kind of uh, uh, either a, a brave situation, like with the, the Black Knight. Uh, it can be kind of comic. Or it could be uh, a way of introducing this familiarity, like to calling the Atlantic Ocean the pond. I feel like we have to say something about how Brits are especially good at working literary terms into everyday speech. Mm, okay. And I just I, I just marvel at sometimes the way they they you know their ribald humor, you know, and it's just like <laughs> I don't know, they it, probably there's there's an art to over talking. Yeah. 
and and keeping yourself entertained. It's almost like some of the Brits I know. They um yeah they they're just kind of doing it for yucks that only they appreciate. I've heard little kids. Speaking of the number one that I took metaphor, I've uh-huh. heard little kids when I was traveling through England who would criticize a metaphor and say, "Well, that doesn't really fit." Because, <laughs> you know, A B C D. And they'd have like reasons. They they hold themselves to a high standard. I think even at a young age of. If you're going to use a comparison, an analogy, an illusion, you probably have to get things right or you could be called out on it. It probably makes everybody a little more careful and a little sharper in what they say and how they say it. That's funny. Okay, so we are up to your number nine. This must be our number 17 on our list. What do you have as your pick? So I have pathetic fallacy. I think. Oh, okay. I think it's. That's good. Uh, you know, I mean, for people who don't know it, it's um, it's the attribution of human feelings and responses to inanimate things mm-hmm. or animals. Yeah, it's not pathetic in the sense of right. sad or sorry, but pathetic in the sense of pathos or or too much empathy kind of thing. Well, that's I mean, that's why I kind of love this term is like the level of pretension. And when you encounter this term as a teenager, it's just such a fun, the history behind it, John Rushkin, the critic, yeah. um, he, he considered it to be like a negative. It's like sentimental poetry. Right. But I think when you write, when you start writing fiction and you find yourself doing it, you think of yourself as like being very like, you know, like you're a god and you're overseeing this world <laughs> you've created. And of course the leaves, you know, are indifferent to you. <laughs> And I just I, th- right. I think it's such a cool term, and it's something that people do in everyday life, which also appealed to me. So to say it was an angry wind, yeah, or uh, yeah, that it, that's the pathetic fallacy. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of you know the history. I, I also like you know thinking about the history of some of these literary terms, like you know, ambiguity used to be a huge literary discussion point. And it's mm, sort of like yeah. that guy who wrote The Seven Shades of Ambiguity. Yeah, Empson. Yeah. I referred to him last time, yeah. And it's it's kind of like nobody really cares anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had ambiguity as number 23 on my list. Oh, okay. I mean, I just, I just feel like that, that, that way of discussing literature has kind of fallen by the wayside. Yeah. But maybe maybe, maybe we should bring it back. We should, we should have an Empson, Empson episode. Well, ambiguity, yeah. And speaking of terms that uh, I didn't take because I'm planning to do an episode on them. There's a couple where I've sort of already done an episode on them. One was Sonnet mm-hmm. and one was Negative Capability. I spent a lot of time on that when I was talking about Keats. And then uh, Sublime and Haiku. Hopefully I didn't just pull any of your picks, but those are ones where I was planning to do a full episode on them. So I crossed them off my list. No, I think I'm down to one, right? That was my that was my number nine. That was your number nine. And I will take my number nine, which is Hamartia, or also known as Tragic Flaw, which comes from Aristotle's Poetics, of course. The tragic flaw is the thing that propels the story, propels the tragedy, in his view. And tragedy, in the dramatic sense, is a little bit different from how we would use tragedy in real life. We might say, he was hit by a bus, what a tragedy, or he died young from cancer, tragically. Uh, but that doesn't really have dramatic tension. That's not exactly what Aristotle was describing when he was talking about drama. He was talking about, and, and it, the reason why it doesn't is because it doesn't really fit into that person's character. That's a It's a deus ex machina, to use your recent choice. It, it sort of 
leaves us with the sense, we in the audience, that, well, gods are cruel and fates are fickle and accidents can happen to anyone and such is life. That's not really a story. Uh, it really needs, for it to be a tragic flaw, it really needs to be the thing that leads to the downfall of the hero. But it also isn't just vice or depravity. So it's not just, well, Midas is so greedy, he ends up getting what he wants, but he turns everything to gold and it turns out awful. Or or this guy had all of these affairs and then he got a sexually transmitted disease and died from it. Or, or he, this guy was so mean to his children, they grew up and murdered him. It's more like an error or frailty, like a mistaken belief or some quality like pride that might be a perfectly fine quality to have, mm -hmm. but if you maybe go a little bit too far with it, it ends up leading to your downfall. All right. Well, my last pick, I just wanted to do a parody of literary theory because I just feel like every so many articles use these two <laughs> terms that they've become <laughs> basically meaningless. I mean, the, the, the verb to limb... Which, oh, okay. which means to like describe in you know with painting or suffuse some highlight with right. you know bright color and lacuna, which is a gap <laughs> in the manuscript, but right. has come to mean like some nugget you've uncovered that was in lacuna in you know Jane Austen's novels when it comes to like urban centers and and I just think it it's an example of how everyone uses it, so you have to continue to use it. But for someone like me, I just find it, you know, it's lost its meaning. Right. Yep. Those limb especially is one that has kind of come to stand for, it's kind of like that phrase people will say when they say, oh, Germans must have a word for this, <laughs> where that's, people say that so much that it's kind of become yeah. sort of a joke, kind of a cliche. And limb has become the thing that people will point to as, well, that writing is way too academic, that that person is way too full of themselves. Maybe we should, people should stop using limb and start using sesquipedalian. <laughs> I like that. Freshen I mean, that one up a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I think when the band Pavement uses a word, then it, it, it means that the word is dead because they're they're using the word to uh, ironically. And so yeah, it's dead. That punctures the balloon of anyone who uses it. I wonder if if editors are rejecting manuscripts or crossing it out if they get submissions where people mm -hmm. use the word limb, although it still pops up. You still see people who use it, and then you'll almost immediately see people in the comments section mocking it. <laughs> I think there's probably, you know, a hundred words like that, which, uh, you know, literary theorists still continually use and will use until they die. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or until they fall out of favor and then a new one rises up to take their place. Okay. So I will take my last one. This is our number 20. And it is the word timesis, which mm. cracks me up just because the idea that this thing even has a name cracks me up. It comes from the Greek word meaning to cut. And it refers to a, cutting a word in two and then putting another word in the middle. Like absolutely <laughs> is, is a big example or fan-fucking-tastic uh, is one that people will often say. Kingsley Amos had a really good one where he said in his book, I think it was in Old Devils, and he said he got the formula off a of barman 
in Marrakesh or some bloody where. <laughs> and I actually, it turns out there's a really good one from John Donne way back in the 17th century. He said, in what torn ship soever I embark, that ship shall be my emblem. What sea soever swallow me, that flood shall be to me an emblem of thy blood. That's from his, uh, <laughs> that's from, from him to Christ. So pretty impressive. He was actually, he put what torn uh-huh. together and shipsoever together. So he broke the word in the middle of his tamesis. So it's sort of a, I guess just shows what kind of attention he was paying to words and syllables and what kind of effect he wanted to have, which is very appropriate for John Dunn. So there are our numbers 11 through 20. I think it's a pretty good list. What do you think? Any surprises in what I chose or what you found yourself taking? No, I think we we had pretty we were went all over the place. We were yeah. you know, I think the, you know like there there were certain things that I just I think there's there's there, there's so much richness in like a term like allegory. But then mm, I was like, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, right. Right. I had, you know, things I was considering hubris and subtext and ambiguity, I said was on my list, anti-hero, doppelganger. You know, there's a lot of those that are really interesting words and would have been fun choices, but ultimately could only take 10. I'm going to use Tamesis in Scrabble. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great Scrabble word. (laughs) T-M-E-S-I-S. Not many words start with T-M. Okay. And of course, the the one that I thought you were going to take number one, palindrome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just learned about an ambigram. Oh, right. Which is backwards and forwards as well as upside down. Upside down. Yeah. You need to, like words on a calculator will work that way. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that wraps things up. Were there any other honorable mentions you had you wanted to mention? No, but I I did want, I I did look, go down a rabbit hole and try to figure out the the poetic rating system in Dead Poet Society, the so-called J. Evans Pritchard scale of, have you seen the film? It's probably years, right? Uh, Yeah, it's been years. Yeah, so you calculate a poem's greatness by measuring its importance along a vertical axis and then its perfection upon a, a horizontal axis. Ah, okay. And it's it apparently in the Robin Williams character, the, the prep school professor mocks it. Apparently it was based on a real professor, Lawrence Perrine. So I was trying to find a term about ranking poetry, but I wasn't able to. Mm, right. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay, basically, so that's trying to, one. basically trying to find terms that match the things that I don't like about the way literature is discussed. <laughs> <laughs> so. Right. Well, I won't say that the Germans probably have a word for it, um, <laughs> although they probably do. Okay. Well, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mark Twain, a.k.a. Samuel L. Clemens, and Charles L. Webster. Can you combine those names with the same initial? The way you can do with first names. If it were Samuel Clemens and Samuel Webster, you could say Samuels, Clemens, and Webster. Kind of a shorthand. Can you say 
L's, Samuel Clemens and Charles Webster? Probably not. But you can say, as we all said of the movie Trespass when that came out, ah, it's a movie that stars Ice's T and Cube. That should have retired the practice. I don't think you're going to get better than that. Ah, I'm also thankful to you for joining us today. We are rolling people, rolling along like tumbleweeds through a desert or stones down a hill. Nothing to stop us, and there's no point to any of it. <laughs> I should propose that is the new motto for the show. Jack Wilson's History of Literature. Nothing ever stops it, and there's never any point. Also kind of my philosophy of life until I guess someday it won't be. I, ah, this took a dark turn. Let me go get some coffee, turn on some lights, power up the music, maybe a little Ella Fitzgerald, maybe a little Prince, and life will be better very soon. I hope it will be for you as well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>